Hi, I'm Paul Ellard. Welcome to Our Queen, Our Mother, the Graces of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In our sessions, we will be exploring the topic of the Blessed Virgin Mary and why she is important to the Christian faith. With each talk, we will try and open up and explain in simple terms the Catholic Church's teaching on the Blessed Virgin Mary. We will also include a testimony of people who have experienced her love and grace in their own lives. So welcome to the program and let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. A loving God, we give you thanks and praise for all the graces and blessings that you never cease to keep pouring on us. We thank you, Lord. Lord, we ask you to be with us this day, to send your Holy Spirit, to enlighten our hearts, that we may come to know and love your mother, and to be able to defend your mother, and to be able, as scripture calls us, to give an explanation for our faith, for why we believe, and in doing so, help others to come and know your mother. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Blessed Pope John Paul II, pray for us. Saint Louis de Montfort, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we want to look at the topic of Marian apologetics. Now, I think first we need to explain the meaning of apologetics. Just in case some people are a little confused, apologetics has nothing to do with saying sorry. The words apologetics and apology, although they come from the same source, are two different meanings. So apologetics is, in brief, the defense of a particular viewpoint through reasoned debate and evidence. In popular use, apologetics has become to refer to the defense of a particular religious doctrine or set of doctrines or a religion. And one who engages in apologetics is called an apologist. So today we want to look at that topic with a particular focus on Mary, Marian apologetics. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to look at common misunderstandings about Mary. And we want to use scripture itself to correct these misunderstandings because our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, they don't accept the sacred tradition of the church as being authoritative. Now, I think it's important when we talk about apologetics, and especially Marian apologetics, that don't think that you can just use these proof texts from Scripture and all of a sudden your Protestant friends are going to want to become Catholic and start praying through Mary. I mean, it is possible, and it has happened before, but it's unlikely. And if you're speaking to a Protestant who has been well-formed in the Protestant tradition, then it's highly unlikely. So if your aim is to actually convert someone to the Catholic faith, 
then really you need a totally different approach. We need to deal with the very large topic of showing why Scripture alone is not a biblical teaching. So, really, what I'm trying to say here is there's kind of like two levels of apologetics which we can deal upon. One of them deals with common misunderstandings about Our Lady, and they are pretty easy to resolve, and that's really the main aim of our talk today. And these can be very useful for Catholics who haven't quite understood Mary, and also for Protestants. But if you're really trying to convert a Protestant, I really believe you have to approach it on a whole different level. If you've ever tried to explain to a Protestant friend about your Catholic faith, and you probably spend a lot of time defending each topic and going from one topic to the next, talking about Mary, talking about purgatory, talking about the Pope, and the more and the more you go through, you actually you get a sense that you're not making any headway at all. And why? Because the Protestant viewpoint has a totally different worldview to what we have. And unless you address that, you're really not going to make any ground. So, I think before we jump into dealing with common misunderstandings about Mary, it's probably worthwhile to say a few things about the bigger picture, about apologetics and how is the best approach if you really want someone to consider seriously looking at the Catholic faith. You have to approach it in a different way. Now, it's a huge topic, so we, we aren't going to do it the slightest bit justice. But I just wanted to give you a little taste of the essence of it so that you get some idea. So we'll only just give a few minutes to it because we want to spend most of our time talking about the ones that are going to be more practical for most of us in our everyday journey. Now, it's interesting that when you look at apologetics, if you want to find the best approach, the best way is to look at the former Protestant ministers who have joined the church. And there are many, there are hundreds. But there are some that have really had high profiles in recent years. These people have done a lot of talks, written books, and they really have put together, they really have put together very solid presentations and explanations explaining all these principles. When it comes to the topic of scripture alone, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit, for me, I found the best two Catholic authors on the subject are Ken Hensley and Tim Staples. Now, both of these are former Baptist ministers and very, very good present and have very good presentations and talks on this whole topic. And Scott Hahn, of course, also has wonderful um, talks you can get on Sola Scriptura and how to approach it. But before we even start with this, there's going to be a lot of people who say, well, gee, why are we doing this? Aren't we living in this time of Christian ecumenism? You know, aren't there more important issues? We've got war and poverty and militant Islam. 
Surely when we talk about divisions between Christianity, is that really such a big deal? Well, the answer is, yes, it is. And we back it up that, and we back up that statement by referring to Scripture. Listen to John 17, 20 to 23. This is Jesus speaking just before his passion. It was the last recorded words of Jesus in Scripture before his passion, and it was a prayer for unity. I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one. And why? Here's the last line, really important. That the world may know that you sent me, and that you love them even as you loved me. Jesus makes it clear that the unity of the church will be a sign that will proclaim to the world that Christianity is true. And if we look at St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. You have to ask yourself today, are we anywhere near what Jesus prayed for and what St. Paul speaks of? Well, we look around and we see, well, it's a, it's a lot of debate about just how many different Christian denominations there are, but there's at least 20,000, maybe more. And they all have one thing. They all proclaim they are being faithful to the Bible. Now, obviously, something is wrong there. They can't all be the same and be faithful to the Bible if there's 20,000 different denominations. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. So one of the final things Jesus says, go and teach the people to observe all all the things that I have commanded you. Not just some basics, not just some fundamentals, but all that I have commanded you. Now the one belief that's common to all Protestant denominations is the principle of sola scriptura. Don't be intimidated by the Latin. Sola just means alone. Scriptura means scripture. So scripture alone. And in other words, Scripture alone for the Protestant is the sole and infallible rule of faith. But actually, 
Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone, it's a complex of belief. It's not a single belief. With that goes a number of other concepts or beliefs which are part of that same principle. For Protestants, the primary and absolute source of authority is Scripture alone. And they teach that all things necessary for salvation are found in the Bible and can easily be concluded. In other words, the text on their own speak for themselves, without any external assistance. So simply by comparing the various verses of Scripture, you allow those passages which are more clear to give luminance to those that are less clear. And so anything not taught in Scripture cannot be binding upon the believer. Only those things that are clearly shown in the Bible can be binding. Did you catch that? Only those things that are clearly shown in the Bible can be binding. What does binding mean? It means that you have to believe. Can you see how arbitrary it is? All this, by the way, comes from Ken Hensley, one of those former Baptist ministers I spoke of. So the belief of Scripture alone also includes the absolute right of private judgment. And this follows inescapably from the idea that Scripture alone is sufficient for the believer. And Protestants believe this, although it's not spoken about much, and that is the absolute right of private interpretation and the right to be able to believe and teach these private judgments. You see, since there is no particular church that speaks authoritatively for God, and since there are no particular persons or group of persons who can tell me authoritatively what the true teachings of Christianity are, or since there are no group of people who can authoritatively tell me the true interpretation of Scripture, then ultimately it is the responsibility of each individual Christian to search the Scriptures and decide for him or herself. In other words... Any professions or statements of faith are really only binding on an individual if that person gives it authority, providing that these rules of faith match my own personal interpretation of Scripture. So councils, theologians, creeds, confessions, pastors have no authority over me unless I first determined that they are teaching in accordance with the Bible which is really like saying, nothing is binding on me but me. <laughs> My own personal interpretation of Scripture. So the Bible does teach the authority of Scripture. Catholics and Protestants agree. But Catholics would say it does not teach the exclusive authority of Scripture, nor does Scripture reject the authority of the Church. So that, in essence, is the heart of the problem of Sola Scriptura. Now, it's a huge topic, huge. I've got some notes here, which I do on another talk, and I've got 48 pages of notes. <laughs> and that's only a quick summary. So it's a big topic, but it's very interesting. And if you're really keen to discuss these issues with your Protestant friends, and you really want to present the Catholic point of view, you need to dive into this and do your homework and be able to present it. But like I say, 
go back and listen to those three former Protestant ministers because they used to teach it. They know the other side of the argument. They know how the Protestant believer thinks because they used to teach it and preach it. They present a very powerful argument then on why the Catholic position is the fullness of faith. And ultimately, they are able to show us that the principle of Scripture alone is, first of all, not taught in the Bible. It's unscriptural. It's unhistorical. It's only a comparatively new invention. It didn't exist for the first 1,500 years of Christianity. It's unworkable. 20,000 different denominations show it's unworkable. And when you really look into it, it's illogical. It just doesn't hold up. If you want to find all the proof to those last four comments, you'll need to do a bit of homework because we don't have time to do it here. Really, what we want to do here is come back and approach it more on a more practical level on the common misunderstandings of Mary. So let's then proceed into that area and have a look. Now, the first area we want to look at is the title Mother of God. A lot of people have issues with this. In one parish, I used to say the rosary after a mass, and there was one particular person who couldn't say in the rosary, in the Hail Mary, Holy Mary, Mother of God. They would say, Holy Mary, Mother of Jesus. Now, you can imagine how frustrating that was, having one person in a group of about 30 people saying this really loudly and kind of... (laughs) like saying what is your problem but really the person got hung up on this i knew a friend of our families who used to say to us look mary can't be the mother of god god by definition god by definition is the ultimate source of everything the ultimate creator how can the ultimate creator come from a mother well of course that's not understanding what we're saying We're not trying to rewrite the meaning of the words. Yes, God is the ultimate source of everything. He is the creator. And as such, he cannot come from anything else. We're not saying that. That's not what mother of God says. The term mother of God is saying something about Jesus as well as Mary. And how it came about, basically, in a nutshell... It came about in those early days when they were trying to say, well, who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he God who just took on a body? And so they answered the question basically by asking this question. Who was it that Mary gave birth to? Mary gave birth to a human person, and that person was also the Son of God. So Mary then is the mother of of God. It's saying something about Jesus, that he is both human and divine. And so once again, we see how Mary highlights who Jesus is and brings us to understand who Jesus is. So please don't get caught up on that silly concept. In Luke one forty-three, Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and says, Why should I be honoured by the visit from the mother of my Lord? And so Elizabeth, as a faithful Jewess, did not have any other Lord, Adonai, except God himself. So being filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth 
makes this great salutation to Mary and honours her as the mother of God. The other area that sometimes comes up in discussion is the concept of Mary's perpetual virginity. Many would say, yes, well, Mary was a virgin before she gave birth to Jesus, but then afterwards she had marital relations with Joseph, her husband, and some even say that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And one of the reasons they'll use is they'll quote Luke 2.7, where they claim that Jesus was Mary's firstborn. So because scripture says firstborn, they then assume that that implies that Mary had other children. But if you understand the Jewish tradition that where God spoke to Moses and said, Consecrate all the firstborn to me, the first issue of every womb among the sons of Israel. He is mine. Of course, Moses did not have to wait for the secondborn to realize that the first child was the firstborn and to consecrate him to the Lord. The term firstborn does not imply that there are other children. The term firstborn is critical because the firstborn was consecrated to God in a special way. Usually though, the text of Matthew 1.25 is most commonly presented to deny Mary's perpetual virginity. Matthew 1.25 reads, And Joseph did not know her until she brought forth her son, and he called him Jesus. The verse simply means that there were no sexual relations between Mary and Joseph until Jesus' birth. The sentence itself does not say anything about the future, only about the past. Now we kind of get caught up because the word until often implies something happens after. But we have to not just look at the English concept, we have to look at it in the original language and see how it's used elsewhere. In Genesis 8-7, the raven went off and flew back and forth until the waters dried up from the earth. Now, does this mean that the raven came back to the ark after the flood? Not at all. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, God said to the Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now does this mean that the Lord Jesus Christ will not sit at the right hand of the Father anymore after the defeat of his enemies? Of course not. Again, it's saying nothing about after, only before. To really bring it home and show how this can become an absurd thing if you take it the wrong way. In 2 Samuel 6.23 And until the day of her death, Michal, the daughter of David, had no children. Does that mean that after she died, she started giving birth? Obviously not. So we've got to be careful that we don't take the meaning of the way we often use words and project something onto them that the original language never had in mind. Now, the other common text that's used to deny Mary's perpetual virginity is based on the New Testament texts, which seem to imply that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We see this in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, and later in chapter 6, verse 3, and in Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56. But we have to understand 
that in Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic, as well as in the Biblical Greek, the words sister and brother are used at times to indicate cousin or nephew or niece. There was no specific word for cousin. For example, if we look at Genesis chapter 14, verses 12 and 14 and 16, now this is the story of Abraham and Lot, and of course we know that Lot was the nephew of Abraham. But in verse 14, he talks about Abraham, when Abraham heard that his brother had been made captive, meaning Lot. Now we know that Lot was not Abraham's brother, was his nephew. And in verse 16, Abraham recaptured all the goods along with his brother, Lot. Again, does not mean literally they had the same mother. It means his kinsman. In John chapter 19.25, we read, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdala. There stood three women beneath the cross, namely Our Lady, Mary the mother of Jesus, and her sister, inverted commas, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdalene. Mary the wife of Clopas could hardly be Mary's sister as coming from the same mother because it would be highly unlikely to have two sisters who have the same name. Again, what scripture is really saying here is cousin or relative. So when we read about brothers and sisters of Jesus, they're never meant to be sons or daughters of Mary. If it was meant that, it would actually say that. The New Testament never mentions the birth of any of them from Mary. Those whom the New Testament calls brothers of Jesus are James, that's James the Less, Jude and Simon. The New Testament itself proves that they are not sons of Mary, Our Lady, nor of St. Joseph, but it does mention their parents. So the brothers of the Lord are the apostles and the disciples. We see in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, Peter stood up one day to speak to the brothers. There were about 120 persons in the congregation. So obviously, we're not talking about one person having 120 sons and daughters. <laughs> but this kind of thinking is really very new. Even the, the fathers of the Protestant reformers did not believe that Jesus had brothers and sisters. It's something that's developed in comparatively recent times. So it's a bit of a novelty. And really, it's just very poor scripture exegesis to come to that conclusion. Now, a scripture verse that's often used to deny Mary's sinlessness is Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. This is just after Mary has visited her cousin St. Elizabeth. It's called the Canticle of Mary, or sometimes called the Magnificat. And verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. And the argument goes, See, Mary refers to Jesus as her Saviour. Therefore, Mary must be a sinner. Well, how do we explain that text? Jesus is definitely Mary's Saviour, no question. But of course, there are different ways we can be saved. I like the example I once heard 
Supposing someone is walking along the road and there is a big pit and they fall in and someone comes along and manages to pull them out of the pit, they could say that person was my saviour. But what would happen if another person came along and said, be careful, don't go forward, you're about to fall into a pit and actually stop them from falling into the pit in the first place? They too are a saviour, and in fact, a bigger saviour, because that person prevented the other from falling in. So you see where this is going. In terms of Mary, Jesus was her saviour, because Jesus prevented her from sinning. And this grace was won at the cross. But Mary was given this grace in lieu of this wonderful gift from the cross. Time does not restrict God's grace. Jesus is in fact a greater saviour to Mary because he prevented her from sinning at all, in lieu of the graces that would come from the cross and the resurrection. Now I think it's important in all this talk of Marian apologetics to realise our goal. Our goal is for unity. This is our goal. We talk about differences to try and dissolve them. We want to get back to that desire of Jesus just before his passion, that we may all be one. It's common to find people who see Mary as being disunitive. And whenever you talk anything ecumenical, it's always, oh, leave Mary out. But I think we have to try and work with it and move through it with respect for other traditions, certainly. But at the same time, we have to keep close to the truth. Because only the truth will bring about Christian unity. In fact, I would encourage you to start seeing Mary as the key to unity. Now, it's my own personal belief that Mary will be the link to bring unity to all the religions in the world. Now, that's only my personal opinion. You're free to disagree with it. But let me just share with you my reasoning. Mary has a unique role in the three great monotheistic religions of the world. First of all, obviously, she is the perfect disciple of Jesus. And she's the perfect model of what it means to be a Christian. So she is the perfect Christian. But of course, don't forget that Mary came through the Jewish tradition. So Mary is also the perfect model of what it means to be Jewish. Did you know that Mary is mentioned in the Quran? In fact, she's mentioned in the Quran some 34 times. If you don't believe me, you can download an English version of the Quran, do a word search, and you'll see. Now, obviously, Muslims do not see Mary as the mother of God because they don't recognize Jesus as divine. But nonetheless, there's an openness to Mary on at least some level. And I don't believe that to be mere coincidental. They acknowledge Mary as the mother of the prophet Jesus. Obviously, from a Christian point of view, there's a long way to go on that. But nevertheless, it's interesting to see that Mary is in the traditions of all these three great monotheistic religions of the world. And hopefully, one day, she can be that key of unity that brings Christianity together. 
but looking first at unity between Christians, which is obviously our first goal, there are very encouraging signs. A friend of mine told me about a book by Rowan Williams. Now, Rowan Williams, of course, was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Anglican Church. And he's written this beautiful book called Ponder These Things. What it is, is is icons of the Virgin Mary with the infant Jesus. And the subtitle to the book, Ponder These Things, is Praying with Icons of the Virgin. So it's wonderful to see our Protestant brothers and sisters discovering that Mary can really be a key to know Jesus in a deeper and more profound way. In Rowan Williams' commentary on one of the icons, he says this, The icon is beginning then to say something rather substantial about our knowledge of Christ. We are led to Christ as the one who himself leads to others, who will not appear to us except as the one whose love is active and directed. To love Christ is to love his love and to love what he loves. And a bit further on he says, What we see is, of course, a circular motion. Mary pointing to Christ who looks at her. Mary returns to herself through Christ. She is not only as pointing to Christ, but as the object of her son's love. And for her to look to Christ is for her to look at herself truthfully, as loved by him. So she looks at us, urging us by her gesture, not to keep our eyes on her face, but to follow the hand that points to Jesus. He looks at her, drawing us back to her face. So it's a beautiful little book, and to think that it was written by the head of the Anglican Church is a very encouraging sign. In doing some research on the net, I found an interesting comment by a Donald Lacey, who was a retired United Methodist minister. He's an author and teacher, and he says this, It is devotion to the Blessed Mother that helps unite us as Christians. When we Protestants lose their widespread hang-up that Roman Catholics have worshipped and do worship her, they can perceive by the power of the Holy Spirit an authentic ecumenism that calls us to be one. Catholic author Kenneth Howe written a book called Mary of Nazareth, Sign and Instrument of Christian Unity. It's available through Queenship Publishing. He has some beautiful things to say about Mary and unity. And he acknowledges that, you know, many people feel the weight of disunity among Christians and long for a greater oneness in Christ. But he raises that question, can Mary really give us that greater oneness? Because after all, Mary has been a source of division between Catholics and Protestants for a long time. What good will focusing on Mary bring? Well, to humanize, it seems that almost any other Christian doctrine would be better suited to bring unity than the doctrines of Mary. And if we think of Mary as just a set of doctrines, that would be true. But Mary is more than a set of doctrines. Mary is a person. She lived her life on this earth as mother of our Lord, with her own character, her own mind, 
around idiosyncrasies. These things are true regardless of what we believe about her. Mary is what she is apart from our beliefs. But there is one unmistakable fact that we must remember about the real Mary. And that is that the Son of God lived in her womb for nine months. This is how Mary can be an instrument of unity. She united the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, with his human nature in her own body. Mary united more than any human being has ever united. She united God and man in the small confines of her own womb. And this is amazing reality. In Mary's womb, heaven and earth were joined, not as two separate realities, but perfectly united in the one person of the Son of God. No wonder, Scripture says, that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. It really is beyond words. And you can understand why Rowan Williams picked that title, Ponder These Things. Links in beautifully here with what Kenneth Howell is talking about. It is because Mary has been such a stumbling block for Christians that a fuller embracing of her person and her role will achieve a greater unity than we might expect. If we view Mary apart from Jesus, then Mary cannot help us. Yet she was never meant to be seen apart from her son. Just as the Magi found Jesus with his mother, as Matthew 2.11 says, so we find Mary involved with her divine son, cooperating in his work and plan. And in every key point in the life of Jesus, Mary is present. And so the unity that we seek ultimately won't come from some kind of negotiated agreement. Our Christian unity must be founded on the truth. It must be a unity of mind and heart, a permanent oneness that is not shaken by the changing tides of custom or culture. The New Testament concept is nothing less than union with the Holy Trinity. Remember what we said, how Jesus prayed for oneness of his disciples and that it would resemble and flow from the oneness experienced by the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. John 17, 21 that they all may be one, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. Jesus does not want us to have unity to be like his and the Father's. He wants our unity to be the same as he and the Father have. Now Mary is both a sign and an instrument of that unity, coming from the Holy Trinity because she bears the unique relationship to each member. Remember, Mary is daughter of the Father, mother of the Son, and spouse of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray for Christian unity. We echo that prayer that you made so long ago, that we may all be one. And we pray that your mother, 
may be the key to this unity, that she may unite the hearts of all Christians and indeed of all those who believe in God, that she may unite all hearts, that we indeed may be one. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Radio.org.au